I know that so many of you were a part of the church two and a half years ago when those events and then the, the years previous to that were unfolding and many of you spent much time praying for Teo and Letty and Jair. And, you know, I, I think it's just so helpful for us. I can remember sitting in church and you hear stories about missionaries and you're just amazed at the activities that are going on and the challenges that they're having to face to, to bring ministry into the part of the world where they are. But sometimes what I think we can overlook is the faith that it takes for them just to live their personal lives. Right? Some, some of us live in, you know, the sort of Western world setting where for us we're spending most of our faith really just on living our daily lives. You know, we're not necessarily putting our lives on the line so that we can advance the gospel into some hostility or difficulty. We're just trying to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh, and, and we're asking folks to pray for us in that. And, and there's a realm in which we need to remember the missionaries that we support and care for, that sometimes just daily life is very heavy and very challenging. And so I'm, I'm grateful that miles away we were able to participate and care and pray and be with them and share in their life as they walk through that difficult season. And, and I hope this in some way connects you into the real world of, of people that we're supporting who we don't see here, but they're, they're living life and they're facing challenges, not only in the ministry that they're leading, but in their personal lives with all the difficulties that that can present. So thank you for the prayers and your involvement. I hope that just only continues and increases for years and years to come. You know, this morning, I don't know, quite know what your title says. Mine says, Knowing is for Believing. And I want to address some issues of faith today. You know, after hearing that, there are some here who are in the category with Teo and Letty of needing a huge dose of faith just to live life wherever it is that you find yourself having to live it. And you can identify with some of the difficulty that they've walked through and, and just how they're still affected by it. And I think I said this a few weeks ago. So listen to them tell their story. This is a couple that has encountered God in an amazing way. But it doesn't mean they don't shed tears. You remember we talked a couple of weeks ago. There's a reality to the life that we live that, you know, we just don't smear a Bible verse onto our lives and, hey, everything's good. We're good. Um, no. No, we can be full of faith and full of tears all at the same time. And I think that's very important to know, to recognize that what they did in faith was to lift their eyes to God to keep their eyes on him, even though blurred by many, many tears. And today, I hope this is helpful for us to look and to see God, how vitally important it is in this series we've been introducing God and we've been looking at 
we've been looking at facts about God, if you will. We've been introduced to what the Bible says about God in a, in a multitude of categories. But I, I believe that where we are in this series is it's not enough just for us to know some things about God. This is not intended to be a series on fun facts about God. Right? God's powerful. God's jealous. God's this, God's that. Okay, great. Bunch of intriguing things that maybe we didn't know a whole lot about. But why, why are we intended and welcomed by Scripture to know those things? It's so that we might be affected by those things. Right? I'm sure everybody here is enjoying the weather. Aren't you glad the weather's changed a little bit? Just give you some fun facts about your weather experience. Some of these you'll know. Some of these you forgot that you already knew. How many of you know that, that we're, we're 93 million miles away from the sun, right? 93 million miles, if you can even fathom how far that really even is, from the sun. The sun, who has a, a surface temperature of 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't, I don't think any of your ovens go up that high. 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It has a core temperature of 27 million degrees now, if you couldn't fathom 10,000, I don't know what to tell you to do with 27 million. So heat is coming from this little ball in space and light as well, right? 100,000 lumens. This is the surface light on the planet Earth. 100,000 lumens per square meter. Now, that means a lot to you, right? Because <laughs> that number doesn't mean anything, does it? Well, let's put it in this context. Your fluorescent bulb in your kitchen gives off about 500 lumens per square meter at a distance of nine feet. This is 100,000 lumens per square meter from 93 million miles away. That's some severe, severe stuff, right? But if I took that, as a matter of fact, if I could just get a picture and tear it out of National Geographic, a picture of the sun. You've seen those pictures where the, where the flames are shooting off the sun. Somehow they got a close-up. I'm not sure who the guy was that took that picture. He's no longer with us, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but you have this picture of the sun. If we could take that picture of the sun, right, let's, let's say we took a picture of the sun and we set it down on the table right here, right next to a Snickers bar. And we came back an hour later. What would have been the effect on the Snickers bar? Nothing, right? The Snickers bar would still be sitting there just like it looked. If we turned all the lights out in here and I pulled out that picture and I showed it to you, what would be the effect in this room? Nothing. But if you walk outside this building today and you take a Snickers bar and you set it on the sidewalk and you come back two hours later, what you coming back to? A melted Snickers bar, right? Or when you walk outside and you just lift your eyes up and you stare into that 100,000 lumens per square meter, what, what are you going to look like? Right? Or some of you guys may be sunburned here. See, because there's one thing to know facts about something. There's another thing to be affected by what you just discovered. Now, be, be aware. We come to church, we read our Bibles, we hang around a lot of material. It's very possible to be a Christian full of facts, but maybe not have experienced and been affected by what we have been learning. Right? In our family devotions, my kids are probably worn out by this verse, but we've been spending the last couple of weeks in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Everybody's memorized it by now. I hope I, I can remember it here. Um, 
We start, actually started this series with it. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the God exercising loving kindness and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And there's two words here that are used. This great division here, God says, you know, I'm going to give you two categories of things that you can boast in, two things that you can put your confidence and your hope in. You can put them in stuff like riches and might, or, or you can put them in me. But he says, boast in this, that you understand and know me. And he uses these two words that are used often together in the Hebrew. The word understand is the word sakal. It has to do with almost like the way in which you'd pick a rock up and look at it and study it. and uh, The way in which a teacher in a classroom owns something. Right? If, you know, we homeschool our kids and so there's these days in which my kids come. It's been a long time since I've done algebra two. Long time since I've done algebra two. So they come with homework questions and uh, I just need to stay one day ahead of them. Right? I just need to be one day wiser than where they are. They don't own it at all. They're just looking at this thing for the first time. But, you know, a, a teacher who owns this stuff comes to the classroom differently than those who are just looking at it for the first time. Same information. Same, minds are dealing with information here. But somebody owns it. And when you ask a question, that teacher can explain it this way, and they still didn't get it, and he can flip it around, and he can explain it this way. He can work it backwards. You know, he can give an example there's amazing talent in some teachers that can do stuff with information. Well, that's what that word sakal is like. It's like you own this. You've looked at it, and you're not just familiar with it. You're not just standing up and saying, hey, you know, when I look at God, there's this concept called algebra 2. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. Right? Some of us approach God that way. You know, I don't know. The, you know, God is sovereign. I don't know. I can't even spell sovereign. I don't get it. You know, but God invites us. To understand, to understand him, to be able to, to look at God through the many angles that he provides for us in Scripture and he aids us by the Spirit and discover him in such a way that we own something about this. We become convinced. But then there's another word that's used there. It's the word yada. And yada is the word that's translated to know. But it means to know not only through study but through experience as well. So what God says in this passage is let him who boasts, boast in this, that he has carefully considered, studied, and owns who I am, and he has experienced me. And you understand there's different level of connecting with God. And, you know, you can, you can walk in some people's houses, and there's a, there's a picture of Jesus on the wall. That doesn't mean people are experiencing the knowledge of God in that place. When you and I can read the Bible and we can even memorize a Bible passage, it doesn't mean that we are experiencing the knowledge of God in that moment. So what we're doing in this series is transitioning a little bit. Peter did this last week in his message where he talked about knowing is transforming. Knowing, that, that sense of yada, knowing has an effect on us. And he used the example of the Apostle Paul. Now, if the Apostle Paul were a Snickers bar, 
He's a different man, isn't he? When Peter laid out who this man was and who he became. He didn't just get in the room with some sayings about God. He didn't just have a picture on a wall of God. He experienced the revelation of who God is, and he became a different man. Now, today I want to talk to us about how understanding and knowing God affects our faith. We've studied God. We know some things about God. And as a matter of fact, I hope Matt will do that song again at the close that we just did, Psalm 62. But seeing and knowing and encountering God, it affects our faith. So we haven't studied this series just so we could have fun facts about God. We've studied it so we could be affected by, our faith would be affected by what we know about God. Now, we all love great faith stories, and it's a great day to have these guys with us today because these are, these are great faith stories. You know, when I look at my hall of faith people, you know, there are those in the Bible we'll look at today, but there are those personally in our lives, and, and, and Dean and Denise are on my list. When I look at the life they have lived and the choices they have made, uh, I'm inspired by their lives. They are a great faith story. The unfortunate thing for most of us is what they've done in their life seems and feels a little bit out of touch with what will ever happen to us. So, you know, some of our great faith stories, we read great biographies about people and we get wowed by what kind of lives that they live, but it's almost as though they, they live in a parallel universe. And so we're inspired, but we're not necessarily thinking, eh, that, that could be describing me. Uh, probably not. Never be me. All right. Well, let me read you a story here that could be you. So just give me a few minutes to read this here. This is from Dave Harvey's book, Rescuing Ambition. Very excited. We're having Dave here in January. Very much looking forward to him being with us. Dave is one of the uh, team leaders for Sovereign Grace Ministries. And Dave has a great writing style. If you've never read anything that Dave has written, he is a great communicator, but he is, he is funny and he is interesting to listen to. But listen to this story. He says, I love having heroes, not the comic book superhuman special powers types, but the everyday garden variety. Forget the capes or Saturday morning cartoons. I'm talking plain old folks with plenty of grit who per- pursue godly ambitions sometimes even at great risk, in obscurity. These people never show up in biographies, so one of my goals is to introduce you to some heroes I know to make their example our inspiration. Do you know what a foster parent is? Picture a titanium-enforced heart miraculously bent toward the needs of desperate kids. Now wrap that in skin and add a stamina package allowing him or her to survive long nights with little sleep. That's a foster parent. The ones I know are heroes on call, accepting spontaneous parenting assignments that would reduce Batman to a babbling bat fool, cowering in his bat cave. If ambition to care were an Olympic competition, these folks would sweep all the medals. Bob and Joan Fannin are foster parents, instant heroes in my book but they carry a unique ambition. Bob and Joan feel called to take in children whose medical conditions make them difficult to place. In their words, they take the medically fragile or the neediest of the needy. So we're already in Hall of Fame territory here, but the story I'm going to tell you goes even farther. While on vacation in 1997, Joan received a call from their foster parent agency asking if they'd be interested in a transplant child. 
Joan didn't know what that meant, but she informed her husband, Bob. As they began to pray, they sensed a distinct prompting from God to take the child, transplant and all. The little boy's name was Christopher. Bob and Joan contacted the agency and agreed to take him sight unseen. But the doctors insisted they visit the boy right away because Christopher had some unusual medical problems. Bob and Joan traveled to the hospital wondering why the doctors sounded so foreboding. The first glimpse was shocking. Christopher lived in a glass bubble. His, his entire world was composed of a steel cage-like crib and three life support systems. The equipment attached to his little body was popping, hissing, and beeping, sad reminders that Christopher's life was maintained by machinery. He was now 18 months old and had lived only two weeks of his life outside a hospital. They could see scars covering his body, a visual catalog of his suffering since birth. Joan instinctively turned away, her mind racing with the implications of risk in accepting Christopher as their own. The medical complications were way beyond anything she and Bob had ever encountered. The doctors had actually placed Christopher's intestines outside his body to help them function better. There were also problems with his liver and other complications. Each time one issue was resolved, another would emerge. And now he needed transplants. If he didn't get them in time, he wouldn't live beyond the age of five. Christopher needed round-the-clock care by people who knew how to care for this condition. Bob and Joan knew they were unqualified. They weren't medical professionals, and they had no training. They had no idea what they were doing. But they had something else, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a burning ambition to seek to help kids who seemed hopeless. We were terrified and overwhelmed, Joan recalls. Our minds were racing. How do we get out of this? But as we looked at Christopher, God gave us the grace to see not only IV poles, but the life of a child, our child. And we knew that God had supplied faith for risks up front. For us, it was a win-win. Both Bob and Joan exchanged knowing glances. Christopher had just found a home. The Fannins had godly ambition to care for those who desperately needed them. God had placed vision and faith deep in their hearts. As time went on, they were able to inspire faith in their other kids for this calling. They knew God called them as a family to care for kids in this way, to take them, love them, and share with them the glorious news of Jesus. This sense of calling formed a powerful impulse that has over the years filled their house with foster kids. Following God's call involves a great deal of risk all the time. That's something the Fannins had to accept as they pursued their godly ambition. Shortly after adopting Christopher, they received a beautiful special needs baby named Samantha. Due to medical complications, doctors predicted she would live only into her 30s. However, soon after she came to the Fannins, it was discovered that her body was riddled with cancer. As she fought for her life, the Fannins lavished their love on her. She was officially adopted and in their family just hours before she died at the age of three. This is holy ground kind of stuff. Radical love, risky love. Taking risks in foster care or adoptions hardly makes headlines. Risk is something we commercialize by removing it from routine life and assigning it to high-profile stuff like business or extreme sports. 
We take political risk, financial risk, mission risks, business risk, and even safety risk. But risks of the heart or home don't seem to get airtime. It's true. It's a shame because that's where most of life is lived. And that's where ambitions often become reality. Ambition isn't something that waits for the big promotion. The Fanon started right where they were, and they accepted an important reality. Where there's ambition, there must be risk. Risk is the cost of ambition. Right, what, a, what a story of people who made a decision in faith. That's a great faith story. They don't know what the future holds as they're deciding whether or not they're going to wrap their world into this needy child's world and another needy child's world. How, how do you respond in faith like that? I mean, it is, it's an inspiring story. But, but I, I want to do this, and, and I don't do this to promote nor embarrass. Uh, this, this story caught my attention because we have heroes like that right here. And I love Dave's description of what a foster parent is like. Because walking with a number of couples here, individuals who have taken on the responsibility of being foster parents, has put them in similar type positions to care for unusual needs, children in crisis, medical needs, challenges that I've watched some of you step into without knowing how on earth to help this child having to have explained to you for the first time, this is how you care for a child who's been shaken and has shaken baby syndrome and whose brain and stem has been damaged by abuse. And, and you're going to now take care of this child. And things are going to happen with this child and you're going to have no idea what to do. Will you take this child into your home? And folks in this church have stepped forward in faith not knowing how are we going to do this, yet they've done that. So I, I want to I I stick you on the headlines for a second. If you're a foster parent here, can, can you stand up for just one second? If you have served as a foster parent, can you stand up just for a second? I know there's a few more folks that are here. You know, I'm, you guys have story after story to tell. It's heart-wrenching to listen to the condition that children can get in that requires the state to step in, take a child, and give that child to another family who will care for them during this difficult season. But what I want to learn from their example, and there's only a few of them that were here this morning. There are several other in the church who have stepped into the realm of, of making their lives accessible by faith. They didn't relocate. They're not living in a third world country. They didn't leave everything that was American and go live in Mexico. They, a lot of them have the same addresses that they had before they got started. Right, so right sitting in our backyard is risky opportunities for faith. Right, Great faith opportunities are right here in the midst of our lives. And God's designed it that way. 
So my question is, how do we get this great faith like this? I mean, listen, when you, when you hear stories, when I read this story, when I listen to the guys that, that are here living life this way, when I read great biographies about amazing saints in parts of the world and in history, when I read those things, I want to be like that, right? Aren't you like that? You read those stories and you're like, man, when, when I grow up, I, I want to live like that. I want to live that kind of a life, all right? Well, how do we do that? How do we live this great faith? Life, just living a life with just great faith. Well, can, can I first start by adjusting my word choices just now? Because it's not great faith that you're called to have. It's just plain old faith in a great God. Listen, great faith may or may not get you very far at all, right? I mean, you can think of some scenarios that would really not be worth having faith in. And I'm thinking, okay, ridiculous life scenarios. How many of you guys grew up shooting spitballs when you were a kid? You know, you take your big pen apart and uh, Peter's hand went up just like that. How many of you know they probably hired an extra person in the school he was in to deal with some of his issues? All right, let's suppose you're just a great person of faith and you're about to go visit Yellowstone National Park You've been told stories about bear attacks there that happen in the park. And you're like, huh, I got no problem. I got no problem with that, man. I'm not bothered. I'm not intimidated at all. And you pull out your big pen. You say, do you know how accurate I am with this? That dude comes charging at me. I will take him down. And you, you sound convinced. That's great faith, isn't it? No, that's stupid faith <laughs> because the object of your faith, is it can't take you anywhere. You might believe big. You might be believing bigger than anybody on a missionary field in the history of Christianity. But it's the object of your faith that's going to sink you. So you and I aren't called to have great faith. But sometimes that's where we start. It's like we want to have faith, so we start with faith. No, we're, we're called to know and understand a great God. And then in knowing him, guess what will happen? My faith will be affected, and then I will do some things. So I want to explore that link between doing great things, believing, and seeing a great God. They're all three connected, right? So let's turn to, well, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 in a moment. Peter Peter touched base on this chapter, uh, and we'll get there in just a second. You, might, you can turn to its next-door neighbor, James, chapter 2 here. But, you know, when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, as Peter mentioned, this is the, the hall of faith chapter. It's the faith chapter of the Bible. Some chapters get famous for what they're about. This is the faith chapter. But, you know, if you really want to study what this chapter is presenting, you can neither start with faith nor stop with faith because the, the chapter doesn't. It's not just a chapter about faith any more than me saying that a ham sandwich is only about ham, right? When I say ham sandwich, I'm featuring the ham, but it's not just about ham, is it? You've got some other stuff around the ham. At bare minimum, for it to qualify for a sandwich, you've got a slice of bread on one side, ham, and a slice of bread on the other. Well, you know, when you come to this construction in Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to find not a ham sandwich, but a faith sandwich, if you will. Right, when you look down on the faith sandwich, the, the slice you see on the top is, is what people did. 
you pull that slice off and you find that there's faith underneath what they did. But if you pull that off, you find that there's a God underneath their faith. There's a revelation of God. So it's like every one of them goes through this familiar recipe. It's like a, a sandwich assembly line in Hebrews chapter 11. Somebody encounters God and sees him for who he is and faith in, grows and increases and is radically affected by what they see and then they do something. Same recipe every time. This guy encounters something about God, faith gets affected, and they do something. Encounter, faith, do. Encounter, faith, do. Right? And this is important because some of us see people doing great things, and we just want to do great things. So we start with the top slice, and that's where, that's where we're, we're going to try and do something great. Or we hear a message on faith, we start with faith. Listen, faith starts somewhere else besides with faith. So there's a connection here. Let me make this first connection before we can look at Hebrews 11. First connection is this. The Bible maintains a connection between actions and faith. This is a principle in Scripture. If you know this and you come to Hebrews 11, it's going to help you to see all that's there. All throughout Scripture, there's this connection between actions and faith. If you're in James chapter 2, look in verse 17 with me. It says, so also faith... By itself, if it does not have works, if it doesn't have any actions, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Right? Faith is invisible. So if you've got no works, you've got nothing to show me. I can't see your faith without any works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, here's the example. Abraham, who gets lifted out of the hall of faith chapter in Hebrews 11. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. All right, well, a couple of things I need to just tweak out in this, in this passage for a moment. Abraham, doesn't the Bible teach that Abraham was justified, did you hear this, by his works? And if you've been reading the Bible for very long at all, that phrase should twist you in the wind a little bit. Because we know in Romans it says, by the works of the flesh shall no one be justified. So wait, so what is this about? Is this teaching that, you, that you're contributing into your justification? Right? Justification is that big fancy theology word for, for being justly right before God. God sees you on good terms with him. So is this verse all of a sudden teaching us that throughout my life, my works, my actions are somehow putting me on good terms with God? Is that what this is about? No. Right? When we let Scripture interpret Scripture, we don't find that idea anywhere in Scripture. But let me just say this. You don't find it here either. If you just keep reading and let the, let the Bible passage interpret itself, let this good Bible interpretation lesson here. If you're going to come to a conclusion about something, like how does one get right with God? You want to conclude that you're participating in it? Well, then you need to find that all over the Bible. If you can't find it all over the Bible, you need to be prepared to abandon your position. 
But you don't have to venture far to find that that's not even what this Bible verse is saying. Because we get to verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believes God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So at some point here, Abraham is about to take his son Isaac and offer him to God. Before he actually does the offering, he already believes something. It was the believing that made him right with God. He believed God, and he was therefore right with God. Now, and also, if you just look at the context of this passage, if you were reading James and you came to this passage, be fair to how James uses the passage. James hasn't all of a sudden decided that he wants to teach people how to make themselves right with God. That's not what James is talking about here. James is talking about the issue we're talking about here today, that there is a connection between real faith and activity. James' statement is this. If you got real faith, then something's going to be going on in your life as a result. There is a connection between your actions and faith. That's what he's trying to communicate here. He's not trying to teach us how to justify ourselves before God. But he is trying to teach us that if you've really put your faith in God, then you really will live a certain way. Your life will be affected. You will take action because there's a connection between real faith and activity. So in this passage, we have all three ingredients to our faith sandwich. Right? We have God object of his faith. We have his faith, his belief, and we have actions. He's going to actually do something because of what he believes. And the second thought I want to make sure you hold on to, real faith is present only when action is present. I'm going to make everybody uncomfortable with that statement. Real faith is present only when action is present. Now, if you survey your life for a second, and I think I can prove that from the Bible. But if you survey your life, you'll find that's true too. You don't do anything without believing something right before you do it. Whatever it is. Remember when God jumps in in Jeremiah chapter 9 with that verse we started with. And God challenges where we're going to put our hope and our boasting and our confidence. Well, some people will be tempted to put their confidence in money, in riches, what is that? What is that investment? Well, it's, it's faith. Well, why are, you, why are you doing that? Because you saw something. What did you see? I saw the lifestyle of a guy I know with, with a lot of money. I mean, he's going from this to that. He never seems bored. He's flying here, going there, buying that. He doesn't know what it is to wear something out and have to just go without. Every whim and desire, he can fork over some dough and have it. He's, he, he looks like he's having fun. That seems to be working. Well, if you believe that, guess what? You're going to do something in response to that. You're going to begin to construct your lifestyle around acquiring money. If you've seen somebody who's a mover and shaker, they got people in their lives, you like that, that they're outgoing personality, they walk into a room, they connect with people, they look like they got it all together, they got clever answers for everything, and you're thinking, oh, man, that is, that's not me. But look at that guy. I want to be like that guy. I want to have a life like he has. So you see something and your faith says, that's a good thing. So you start trying to win and influence people so you can sort of play in that arena. What's God saying in Jeremiah 9? He says, listen, you want to put your hope and your faith in something? Put it in me. Put the future of your life in me that you know and you understand me. You've experienced me and you're affected by me. Put it there. 
Right? That's what God calls us to do with faith. Second tool. The Bible maintains a connection between seeing and believing. Right? So we have a connection. The bun's connected to that faith thing. Right? So we have an issue of what we do is connected to faith. But then what we believe is connected to what we see. Matthew 13 says, For this people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Right here, look, you see the connection between action of turn, this is turning to God. Right, this is God explaining in his redemptive purpose that if these folks could see what I was up to and they could see me correctly and understand, they would turn to me. See, seeing really is believing. Acts chapter 26, Paul encourages, uh, God encourages Paul in, in his mission, promising that he will deliver them from him from the people, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn. Listen, I'm convinced of this, and I think the Bible supports this. It doesn't come right out and say it this way. I'm convinced that if fallen humanity could simply see God for who he is, we would turn to him and believe in him. That's why the Bible highlights the fact that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. That's the one thing he's after is because I think he knows if you saw God, you would serve and love God with all your heart. The challenge here is for us to see God. See, if you and I would see God, we would believe on God, especially as redeemed people, I can absolutely say, as redeemed people who have the Holy Spirit living in us, illuminating things to us. If you and I could just see, we would believe our faith would be affected by what we see. So what, what does it look like here? Hebrews 11. What does it look like here for Abraham to believe? And I'm going to move through this really quickly just to see a, a pattern that is here of this connection, our faith sandwich in Hebrews 11. What was it that Abraham saw? What did faith look like in the life of Abraham? All right, we're going to read this passage. I want to look for three quick things. One, what did Abraham do? Secondly, what did Abraham believe and third, what did he see? All right, we're take the sandwich apart. Verse 8, Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For or because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. All right, so we're peering down on Abraham's life, and we've got an Abraham's faith sandwich here. What did Abraham do? Well, he obeyed God, Scripture says. He made a decision to get into agreement with God, a God that is new to him, but yet he's encountered this God. So he decides, I'm going to obey God, and I'm going to depart from the land of Ur, the place that I've grown up. I've been all my life. I'm a wealthy, successful businessman. Odds are he inherited a family business that already was going and blowing. 
And maybe he added to it, doubled it in size, I don't know, but he's got stuff. But the source of his boasting, if you will, is right there in the land of Ur. And God comes along and says, I want you to leave all that and go to a place that I'm going to show you. I'm not even going to tell you where it is or what it is exactly. I just want you to leave that. What a challenge. This guy's being called on to depart from that which he has probably put his confidence in, his wealth, his influence. He's a man in that country that meant something to people. Who knows where he's going? You could be a nobody where you show up next. You could be attacked. You could come under fire of some other person to take everything you own. But he took action because he believed something. What did he believe? Well, he believed it would be better for him. It says he was looking for a reward. He believed it would be better for him to go over there to a place he didn't understand or know much about. Be better to go over there than to stay right here. He believed that. And the question is, why did he believe that? He's just a successful man. He's probably a pretty smart dude. Can you imagine? I always wonder what it sounded like for Abraham to explain to his wife where they were going. <laughs> Honey, where exactly are we going? Oh, you know, babe, I don't really know. <laughs> so why are we leaving all of our family and all of our wealth and all of our influence and just taking what we can with us? Why are we doing that? I don't know, babe, I don't really know where we're going. <laughs> I mean, how do you explain this? Except for the fact that this man encountered God in such a way that he got an overhaul. You want to talk about a melted Snickers bar. This man is about to revolutionize his whole world because he's seen something in God. And faith was affected for him to do what he was about to do. What did he see? Well, I don't know all that he saw. But he certainly, when, when the Bible uses this word carefully, he obeyed God. Obeyed God? Well, apparently what he saw was authority. He saw ultimate authority. When he encountered God, he didn't just meet some fuller brush salesman who, well, maybe I'm in for that deal, maybe I'm not. What, do you got a timeshare thing going on on the other side of the world here? You know, I'll get back to you. I'll get back. That's, now, it sounds pretty good, really, but I know I'll, I'll have my people call your people. And we'll, you know, that's not how he responds. He responds to God speaking to him like you have absolute authority to tell any of us exactly what to do. And he doesn't volunteer, he doesn't acquiesce, and he doesn't go along. The Bible says he obeyed God. He saw something of the rightness of God to call the shots in his life at whatever point. He saw God's trustworthiness. It doesn't sound like there's fear and trepidation here. It sounds like there's adventure here. I'm going to a good place. This is going to be good. Where are we going? I don't know. But I've met the guy who built the place, and I'm blown away. And anything he would build, I want to go check that out. That's, that's what he's encountered. You understand, God didn't show him a map, blueprint. There's no brochure. He doesn't give him a PowerPoint presentation with slides of the land being developed there. All God does is say, hey, here's who I am, Abraham. And Abraham says, wow. If that's who you are and you're building something somewhere, I want in on that. I want to be there. See, it wasn't what he believed about where he was going. It was what he believed about the God who was there. 
he saw something in God and his faith was affected. Right? If we look through that story that we see where he offers up Isaac, Hebrews 11, verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, this is what he was thinking, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Right, do you see the sandwich here? All right, top layer, what do we see Abraham doing? He's got a knife and he's about to kill his own son. But he's about to kill him full of faith. He believes something, right? Now, what he's doing isn't easy to do out of sheer affection, if nothing else. But you remember, Abraham has been begging for an heir. He wants, he wants who his life investment has been to continue. He doesn't want to just die and it all goes away. He wants a son, and he's finally got a son. And God says, hey, Abraham, don't, don't you start boasting in your son. You put your boasting in me. You put your confidence in me. As, as a matter of fact, offer me your son. I'm going to make sure you don't start boasting and depending upon and putting your confidence in your son. Offer him to me. Well, in that moment, Abraham agrees with God because he believes something. What does it say here? When you read the story, you see this. Abraham hints at something when he explains that he's going away and he's coming. we're coming back but he's going to kill his son. Do you understand? He is going to kill his son, and he tells the people that we're coming back. He believed something. Somehow, when he encountered God, he got an insight into the resurrection. He believed in the resurrection. He believed that this God was greater than his worst-case scenario. Should my son be dead, what I know about God is greater even than death. Now, what did he see that caused him to believe this? Well, look at, look at what it says here. Verse 19. He considered that God was able. And that's what he stared at. And that's what I love about that song we sang earlier. It so much was about us gazing at God and then life being lived as a result of what we see in God. That's what Abraham did. He considered God is able, therefore I, by faith, will take this action with my son because I've seen something in God that can undo that. That's greater than that. He believed something about God. What was the basis for Abraham's great doing? It was his faith in this great God. Where did he get this faith? By seeing and being convinced of who God is. One last quick example, Moses. Same language is used describing him, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for, here's why, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Right? Moses takes some amazing actions. I mean, here's Moses, mover and shaker 
in the land of Egypt. He's got, a, he's got his life worked out. He's this young prince. He's got money. He's got fame. And he refuses all of it. That's doing something. That's doing something radical. I mean, he's given up like the Camaro chariot and the, the free parking garage that goes with the palace that that thing was in. He's given up a, a life of being able to go out and buy every time an iPad gets upgraded. He can just go out and get one. No problem. He'll never go without. This guy's got wealth. He's walking away from a summer home in Martha's Vineyard, a winter home in the Rockies. He's refusing. He's saying, you know what? I give all that up. But just like the Apostle Paul, because he found something more valuable. He believed something. He gave up all these things because of what he believed. Well, what was it that he saw that brought about this amazing belief? Verse 27. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured. How did he go through the life that he created? How did he live this thing out? Because he had seen the invisible God. What he saw so affected his faith that he took actions based on it. All right, now listen. We, we want to live these great faith stories. Right? We do. We want to take actions of amazing faith. But you can't start with the actions and you actually can't even start with the faith. You have to start with what do you know about this God that you're trying to trust? Has he bulldozed you with amazement? Are you blown away by who he is to where it almost becomes a no-brainer? <laughs> you're going to trust him. You're going to launch out. You're going to do something that on your own you wouldn't be able to handle. Listen, if we could put the sandwich together backwards. If, if we're not doing things for the glory of God, great things, amazing things. It, it's because we're not believing things. And if we're not believing things, it's because we haven't seen things. See, you see how those three things are connected in our sandwich? They're connected in our lives. If I look at my life and I find weak doing, I can't just fix that by somebody coming along and saying, you need to start doing more. Hey, how about doing more? Why don't you do more? Well, I don't do more because I don't believe that way. I believe in the reward of something else. I believe in the catastrophe of that. You know, if I was Moses and I'm thinking, okay, I'm about to upset the most powerful man in the world, I might want to rethink what I'm about to do. Not for him. There were consequences to what he did. But he didn't believe in the consequences because he saw the invisible God. And he said, God's bigger than those consequences. So if we're not doing, it's because we're not believing. It's because we're not seeing. All right, now let me, let me teach you a principle that you should only apply here. Matt, you can go ahead and come up. Only apply this principle to the realm of faith. Do not apply it to how you use your money. It's the principle of living beyond your means. Now, the reason why I can use this illustration is because all of us are good at this. We already practice living beyond our means. Here's how it works. We face a situation, usually financially, where, you know, buying a house is a great example of this, where we want in this moment to possess that house. The problem is we don't have the hundreds of thousands of dollars that it costs to possess that house. 
So what we do in that moment is we live beyond our means because in the moment, I don't have the means to buy this house. So I'm going to reach into the invisible future without knowing what my future really is going to be and I'm going to grab money from the future and I'm going to pull it into right now and I'm going to live bigger than I actually am capable of living right now. And this is just true. Right? It's not just houses. It's a lot of stuff in our lives. We reach into some unseen resource and we import it into our lives right now and we make our lives bigger than what we could have done had we not reached there. Now, financially, that's a problem. But that's exactly how you're supposed to live by faith. You and I start living life. We bump into a circumstance. Our resources are limited. We lack something We're not going to be able to do that. In that moment, we reach into the invisible God and we get resources that we don't have to do something that we couldn't have done and we live beyond our means. That's the Christian life. But you won't reach for something that you haven't seen. You've got to see something about God so you can reach into the bank of God, if you will, and say, I have some of that. Not because I have it, but because you have it. I put my trust in that. I bring that into this moment with me. Right, listen, the reality for the lives that we're living here is some of us feel like we don't have the resources to walk where we're walking. I don't have it in me. I don't have the, the resources to, to witness to people, just be bold and to share my faith. And I just, you know, I bump into failure every time I step in that area. You know, in me, it's not in me. All right, well, live beyond your means. Get it from God. See something in God that makes your faith get affected to where you would do that. Building God-glorifying marriages, staying in a marriage that's struggling. I don't have the means for that. You understand? I, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. All right, well, then borrow something from God. Live beyond your means. See something in God that so convinces you that, yes, you can do it. I don't, know, I don't know how I'm going to survive raising children or whatever it is that you're having to do right now. Right? Most of us at some point are experiencing a crisis of a lack of time, a lack of talent. Right? We just, I, I just can't do that. Maybe you can do that, but I can't do that. You understand? I'm not wired that way. Okay, well, in that moment... See something in God and reach into it. Be affected by it in faith and get it from God. If God's called you to do that, well, you don't understand, I still get the same amount of time. Yeah, but, but God can give you power to do in that time what you can't do on your own. Well, I don't have the energy to do that. Well, God can do something with your energy. If you see power in God, right? haven't we learned about the power of God? There's amazing power in God. There's sustaining in God. There's strength in God. Do I see that in him to where I know, boy, there's, there's no brownout in heaven going on right now. I need some power and some strength and some ability, and I don't feel like I've got it, but God is teeming with it. His power is amazing. Listen to this last thought. Dave Harvey in his book says, I think we as Westerners could use a big dose of faith that comes from the risk of dangerous gospel assignments. 
But in looking for the big risk, we can also overlook the little risks and the faith that comes from accepting them. Sometimes the ministry we walk right past each Sunday or the neighbors we wave at at a distance are the very risks where gospel ambition lays claim to us. Let me ask you, here's my question for us. What spirit-constrained risk is God calling you to take? Now, for you to do it, you're going to have to get something from God. Maybe it's finally getting fully involved in that church you've been visiting for months. Maybe it's going from two incomes to one so you can parent your kids in a more hands-on way. Maybe it's not waiting for the church to start an outreach ministry and just reaching out yourself. Maybe it's coming out of retirement and into the strategic use of your time and resources to serve others. Stare risk in the face and declare that you won't be owned by your fears. You serve a great God who purchased you with his blood. He, not your fears, will determine your steps. He holds the future, and he's called you to run hard after it. All right, challenge to us, and I want to pray for us in this regard. What spirit-constrained risk is God calling you to take? Abraham lived a risky life. Moses lived a risky life. The people in chapter 11 lived risky lives. They did risky things because their faith had been affected by what they saw in God. Let's stand up together. Lord, help us this morning. Lord, there's, there's no shortcut to the Christian life to where we somehow can get a version of it that doesn't require us to walk by faith. But Lord, there's something to having faith. It comes from somewhere. It gets inspired in us. It gets affected in us by what we see of you. So Lord, this morning, I want to pray for folks this morning. Lord, help us. There's some folks here who are called to do some radical stuff. Radical that may never be noticed by anybody else but them or their family. But radical nonetheless. Scary to them. Risky feeling. Lord, they're only going to get up and do that if their faith has been affected by who you are. So, Lord, that's how we want to minister this morning. Spirit of God, help us. Help us here this morning. If you're in this place, and this is what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to invite some folks to receive prayer, and I'm going to dismiss everyone else. If you want to stay and Matt's going to play, you're welcome to stay and just engage with God and listen for issues of faith in your own life. But there are some of you here this morning that to take one step further in the same thing you've been doing for years feels risky and scary. And your faith is in need of being affected by God. There's some of you here that maybe God's calling you into something. God's rerouting you. You're, you're having a Dean and Denise moment where being an American the way you've always been, all of a sudden God is saying, i got something different for you, and you are scared to death. 
And if you're going to respond at all, and you're going to do anything in that category, it's going to be because your faith has been affected by what you see in God. So if you're in one of those places, I want to invite you to come forward this morning so we can pray for you and ask God to meet you days ahead, to begin to reveal to you who he is in such an amazing way that you are not intimidated. You're staring the fear in the face, armed with who you know God is, and you are not backing down. You are not moving away from that thing. You are not intimidated. Your fear is giving way to faith, and you are seeing something in God that causes you to launch out. Say, if God's involved in that, if he's the architect and the builder of that thing, I want to be all over that. I want to be standing at that address when what God's doing goes up. I don't even know exactly what it is right now, but man, if God's in it, I want to be a part of that. So as Matt leads us in this song, if you guys would come forward, I'd like to have some folks pray. I think there's some people here who you've had to walk through getting faith to do something in your life. You've had to be affected by God so that you could bring the resource of who God is to bear on that. Like Dean and Denise, if they're back there somewhere. Yeah, if you guys would come up here, you could pray for some of these folks. That would be a great blessing. If you've been here and you know what it is, you you know what I'm talking about. You've had to walk through that. Can you just come and impart some of that to these guys? Just just come lay your hands on them and pray for them. Okay, it's probably not it's probably not a counseling moment this morning. I don't think we need to undo their situation, help them understand what they could have done and what they need to do in the future. This is a moment where people just need to encounter God and maybe begin the process of encountering him in greater and greater ways so that they can be affected by him. So come and pray that way for these folks as the Lord leads you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for amazement about who you are. God, as we sing now and as we pray for one another, as we digest, Lord, this this whole series, God, of staring into who you are. God, it's not just fun facts about you that we wanted to see. God, we want to be affected by who you are. God, if you're great and you're faithful, God, will then launch us into places where we're convinced that my great faithful God will show up with me in that spot. God, if we don't have the resources, if we're in this place saying, man, I, I don't know how, I don't even know how to give a dime to the kingdom of God. I don't know how to tithe, much less give anything to the kingdom of God. Well, God, you're a great God and you're a faithful resource for every need we ever have. God, teach us to look into the wealth of who you are to us. The God of great provision who will never fail, will never leave us, will never forsake us. The righteous will never be begging bread. God, teach us to look into who you are and to be affected by who you are so that we will do great, amazing, faith-filled things for the sake of your name. Lord, meet with us this morning as we sing, transform our hearts.